God, that song lifts our eyes to just tremendous ventures, to bold things that we might do in your name, to things that we would never have dreamed of even trying. Walking on water, are you kidding me? And yet, the greater reality of that song for most of us is that the daring thing we need to do is the daily thing we need to do. It's the simple step of obedience. It's the long walk in the same direction. Just being willing to follow where your voice calls. And sometimes that does not look bold and adventurous. But it's what you call us to do. I pray that you will give us the boldness to obey in simple things. To just take the next step of your calling day after day after day that we might look more like Jesus. It is in his name we pray and always pray. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So we started last week looking at the book of Judges, just a handful of books into the Bible. And in that book, we discovered, we coined this term, spiritual entropy. Spiritual entropy is this move toward disorder that takes place in our spiritual lives if we're not putting some effort into it, if we're not just doing the things that we're supposed to be doing without investing effort and time We tend to lose our passion, we lose our focus, we lose our energy for spiritual things. Spiritual entropy is this reality that that if we simply leave things the way they are in our spiritual lives, they won't stay the same. They don't just stay there. Over time, they degrade. In the last message, we identified several signs or sources of spiritual entropy. And in this message, we're going to look at how we can intentionally intercept them. How do we keep from going there in the first place? We don't have to go through this cycle. We can break the cycle and we can move toward spiritual maturity as well as spiritual health. When we come to this book, two amazing things happen. Two fulfillments of promises to Abraham. One, you remember God promised Abraham, you are going to have a huge family, as numerous as the sand and the sea. And by this point already, this is a very, very large nation, over a million people. And not only that, there's a second promise. He said, and that large family will find a home. They'll come back to this place where your feet have wandered, and this will be their homeland. Both of those things are fulfilled in the book of Judges. He gives them a family and a place to call their own, a place called home. For centuries, these people have been waiting. They've been longing. They've been praying for the day that they would be a mighty nation living in their own land. And in the book of Judges, this dream has become a reality. Honestly, this should be a high point book. This should be a book that we go back and read and we just celebrate all the great things that are happening But the sad fact is the people missed their divine moment. Instead of walking closely with God, their hearts began to wander. Spiritual entropy began to set in and they began to fall away. So last week we looked at this 
what we call the judges cycle, a cycle that, that you'll see time and time again from different Bible scholars. It's something that I learned in, in seventh grade Sunday school class, and you see it again and again. I had a few people comment that my alliteration broke down with the D in there. I just couldn't think of a good C word for deliverance. But, but basically, we see the people in the land of Israel, and they're in a place of contentment. Life is good. Their contentment begins to drift, and they become complacent. They just kind of begin to accept that this is the way it is. They don't see the goodness of God all over what's happening. And what happens is they start to compromise. They start to try little sins. They don't go straight for the biggie. They just, little by little, they let things creep into their heart. They try that. It didn't seem to impact anything. They try a little bit more. They didn't seem to impact. And before you know it, those compromises lead to a a season of captivity. Captivity to their sin, as well as captivity to another nation. They cry out to God for help. There's intense pain. They can't handle the pain anymore. And as they cry out to God for help, God in his mercy and God in his grace sends a judge not a, not a black robe, gavel-holding uh, sort of judge, but a person who comes with this spiritual mission of rescuing the people. And he has God's supernatural power upon him or her and rescues the people from their captivity. There's this season of deliverance, and the deliverance leads to celebration and peace and contentment once again. And over and over and over, we see this cycle continued. We begin to wonder as we look at this cycle, is there any way to break this cycle of decay? Do we have to go through this? I do believe that one of the things that happens for many of us, we come to a realization that something is broken, something needs to change, and we fall into something we might call maybe tomorrow syndrome. There's probably something that's going on in your life even right now that you keep thinking, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. It was going to be January 1st, right? That was the resolution. I'm going to fulfill this. And now we're to January 21st and you're thinking, or 20th and you're thinking, maybe Monday. Maybe, maybe tomorrow I'll go ahead and get at this. And you just kind of keep, you keep pushing it out and you keep pushing it out. The only way to break the cycle is to do something now. Action now. It can't wait. It can't be put on hold. Unfortunately, the cycle looks something like this. I need to get some things right in my life. I'll do it soon, but not today. I need to give up that bad habit. I will tomorrow. I'm feeling conviction in my life. Uh, maybe I need to pray more. I, I, yet my schedule is so full. Maybe next week I'll clear some things out first. Everything can wait just one more day. But for you know it, a day after a day after a day passes and a lifetime passes by. Time rushes past our good intentions and they only remain intentions. They never become actions. You know, this, this cycle, this cycle begins right here on the front row. It really does. Begins in high school, right? We, we look at life and we go, man, there are some things I want to get right with God. This is important. I'll do it in college. You know, college is a time to be serious, but, but high school is a time to have fun. And so you get to college, what happens? Oh, you realize college is more fun than high school. I, I, can't, I can't fix this now. I got to enjoy life right now. But someday when I'm really old, like 30, when I have kids, when I have a job, when I have those obligations, that's when I'll finally get right with God. And you get to that stage in life, and life is so busy, life is so hectic that you think, hey, Social Security, 65, retirement, that's when I'll finally, I mean, I'll be really close to dying. I better get serious with God, right? That's when it'll finally happen. 
A lifetime passes in a snap of a finger, and good intentions are never, ever realized. We've got to get at it. We've got to get at it. Four of the first five judges have a season of peace that takes place after they deliver the people. After Othniel, 40 years of peace. A whole generation. A generation in the Bible is, is represented by 40 years. After Ehud, there are actually 80 years of peace. Two generations. After Shamgar, there's no mention of peace at all. After both Deborah and Gideon, 40 years of peace once again. 40 years represents a generation. And it's clear that after each of these judgeships, God allows for this season that the people experience his grace and, and they live in that. But there's seven judges that there's no mention of peace whatsoever. In other words, the judgeship ends and they go right back to complacency, compromise, and captivity all over again. Sin is like that. Do you remember the first time you felt guilty about that thing you do? Do you remember the first time you cried out to God? Do you remember how you promised you'd never do it again and you stayed away from it for a while? And then you did it again and you cried out to God and you stayed away from it for a while? And now you pretty much repent and go right back the next day. This is the way sin works. The seasons of peace get shorter and shorter and shorter. We've got to learn how to intercept spiritual entropy. And here's the truth today. We're going to be looking at these seven things that we looked at last week. And one, two, or maybe three of them are going to hit you. You're going to go, that's, that's where I'm living right now. Maybe all seven. And what we need to do right now is literally look up to God and ask, Lord, speak to my heart. Speak to my heart. Challenge me where I need to grow. Show me at least one area that I can grow, an area that I can break this, spi this spiral of entropy in my life. If you're willing to open your heart to God today, if you're willing to open your heart to God's Word, if you're willing to hear His Spirit speak, He will lead you and He will help you to grow. So let's look at the first how did the slide take place for these people? What we saw first is the slide began when, when they did not, and we do not passionately and consistently impart the faith to the next generation. To in intercept this entropy, the, the torch of faith has to be passed from generation to generation. Sobering verse, Judges 2.10. After that generation died, that generation is the generation that, that crossed the Jordan River, into the promised land. After that generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord God or remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. I look at this verse, and this, this verse kind of terrifies me. Because I'll tell you what, we, we have been on a fun run as a church. It's been amazing to watch what God has done. And it is terrifying that people who walked through a river on dry ground to a promised land that they had been waiting for for hundreds of years. Just a generation later, the group goes, God who? They don't acknowledge the Lord, God who? That could happen here. It's terrifying to think that where we are now, 40 years later, people could literally say, God who? How do we prevent that? How do we keep that kind of slide from happening? Let me give you a handful of things that we find in the Bible. One, it is our responsibility as spiritual fathers and mothers, as spiritual aunts and uncles, as spiritual grandpas and grandmas to keep connecting the dots. It's our job to keep connecting the dots. 
We need to help our kids see the connection between here and now and then and there. We need to help our kids to see the connection between what we call real life here in flesh and blood world and what's going on in the heavenly realm. We need to help our kids see the connection between what seems to be merely a physical life and a spiritual life. And we need to help our kids see the connection between great things that happen and the activity of God in our lives. It is our responsibility to constantly connect the dots almost to the point that our kids say, would you shut up already? Because we say it so often, we help them to see the spiritual realities beyond what is happening in everyday life. Joshua, Moses, and others talked about things like monuments, memorials, mementos, and moment markers. These little things that they do along the way to say, God did that. God did. Never forget, God did that. In fact, God himself was the one that told Joshua and told Moses, you better do this. People need to be reminded. So they crossed this Jordan River The priests are in the middle of the river with the Ark of the Covenant. They're standing there on dry ground. And after all these people pass, and we're talking million people, okay? This wasn't 20 people went through and it was done. They're waiting hours for the whole group to get to the other side. And finally it's done and God says, all right, here's what I want you to do, Joshua. Go down into the riverbed and you find 12 boulders, one for each tribe, one man carrying that boulder, and they're going to come back out and they're going to put that into a mound. And every time your kids go, what's with the rocks? You're going to say, this is the spot. This is the spot where God parted the water. The ground was dry. And we walked through. We need these along the way. Monuments, memorials, mementos, moment markers. Ways of saying, the activity of God was here. Please don't ever forget. God is all over our life. His fingerprints are everywhere. What else do we need to do? We help this generation, this next generation, to inherit the faith, so to speak. By us keeping God's commandments. Keeping the commandments. Now, by commandments, I'm not just talking about the the ten. How about everything God said to do? God wants us to continually to live out the commands in his book. He wants us to obey. You see, one of the greatest, most effective ways to parent is to say what? Do as I say, not as I do. This is important for you, but I don't have to do it. I'm an adult. I can handle it. But you, you're a little kid. You need to do this. You know what your little kid thinks? And someday I get to be an adult. And someday I get to do whatever I want to do. We don't get to do what we want to do. The Bible says if we're going to be devoted Christ followers, we're going to keep the commandments written in God's word. In the book of John, Jesus says these words in chapter 14, verse 15. He says, if you love me, fill in the blank, what is it? If you love me, Keep my commandments. I love the tie he puts between loving God and obeying God. In our society, what happens? We basically say, if it's love, we can do whatever we want. Love is the highest virtue. And God says, do you not understand? Love leads to obedience, and obedience is a form of love. And so if we're truly showing the love of God in our lives to our kids, we are keeping the commands of God along the way. Granted, we're going to blow it sometimes, and we need to acknowledge we've sinned, we did the wrong thing, and we want to get back to walking with the Lord our God. So we connect the dots, we keep the commandments. The third is we cultivate consistency in community. If there is any singular sin that is the sin of the parents of my generation and the parents of this generation... It is that we do not see the importance of cultivating consistency in community. 
We've become a group of people who allow any competition enter into this sacred space. Any competition enters into this sacred space. 9 and 10, 30, so what? We got things we got to go do. We got things we got to go do. We got, we got things to be involved with. We'll literally skip an entire season of church for a sport or an activity. We'll walk away. But then we'll tell our kids, no, this is really important in our lives. And we just hope that when they turn 20, they'll start going too. You know what they're going to do? They're going to follow our example. They're going to do what we did. They're going to say, wasn't important to mom or dad. It's not important to me. They're not going to see the connection because we need to cultivate connection in community. It's really important. Now, now in recent days, in fact, just today, you can go ahead and turn around. Look back by the soundboard and above the soundboard, there's, there's a black camera right up there watching, always watching, sees you when you're sleeping. No, this is, we're, we're streaming the service. I mean, it's cool. Hi, guys. Streaming the service. This is really neat. And you know what you're thinking today? I never have to miss church. We, we can watch church on the way to the ball game. Woo. We're good to go now. I never have to miss church again. Here's the thing. You never have to miss a message again. You never have to miss beautiful music again. But if you're not here, you miss church. You know why? Church is sitting next to you. Church is sitting next to you. This is, this is church. The people of God are church. What we need to be doing is cultivating community. Our kids need to know that in this room, they have spiritual moms and dads. They have spiritual uncles and aunts. They have spiritual grandmas and grandpas. When my kid comes home from college, you know what he loves? He doesn't care about dad's or mom's cooking. He doesn't even care as much about his own bed. He loves coming home to his church family. He can't wait to be with you. We need to cultivate that. We need to cultivate these relationships. These relationships right here are not optional. These relationships need to be our priority. One other way that we impart the faith to the next generation. We keep them asking. We keep them asking. Love the verse in 1 Peter 3. We talk about it a lot. 1 Peter 3.15. He says, you must set apart Christ as the Lord of your life. He's king. I'm going to follow him. And he says, people when you live that way, are going to ask you about the reason for the hope that is in you. And when they ask that, you're to give an answer. You're to give that answer with gentleness and respect. And so the question comes to us, is there a hope within us that is evident to our children? Do our kids look at us and go, there is something going on there that I just don't understand. It's a good thing, I just don't understand it. Do our kids actually ask about what's going on in our lives and we're able to say there's a connection to God in the way I live out my life in God? We're to constantly keep them asking, keep them asking because they're seeing evidence of the hope that is within us. There will not be another generation of Southfield if we do not faithfully and consistently impart our faith to the next generation. Second thing we saw last week is that this entropy begins when we focus on our own abilities, our own strength, and our own status in order to accomplish God's purposes. You remember God calls Gideon to lead the people into battle. He says, you got the wrong guy. I am weak. I am from a small tribe. I'm nobody. There's got to be someone better. And God says, that's exactly the point. I don't really need you. 
I just want you to do my work, okay? I, I just I want you to be the face of my work among the people. Sometimes we're quick to look at our resume and wonder, what can I do for God? I'm just nothing. The more nothing your resume is, the more useful you are in the hands of God. Because God loves to use people who don't see their gifts, their talents, their abilities as the thing that is really needed. What they really need is to be totally dependent on God. In fact, we see another story in the life of Gideon where God gets to battle with the people and he looks at the army and he says, your army is too big. Can you imagine? Can you imagine you're going to battle and you're told, no, you, you, what you really need is a smaller army. And God goes through this really bizarre series of tests to whittle down the group. First, it's a four to one ratio, then a 13 to one, finally a 450 to one ratio. And God says, now we can go fight. Now we can go fight. You know why? Because at this point, you will know that it was not Gideon that won the battle, and it was not the people that won the battle. It was the God of heaven who won the battle. These insurmountable odds cannot be overcome unless God overcomes them. And so I ask you this. Do you ever in your life feel a need to sense the power of God? Do you ever find yourself saying, God, I need you for this. I can't do this. Do you ever find yourself desperate in prayer just saying, God, I need you to do this. I cannot do this on my own. If you find yourself there, let me tell you that is exactly where God wants us. He wants us to be that, to that place of saying, apart from me, you can do nothing. Can you actually celebrate your weakness? Is the best part of your spiritual resume your weakest part, the parts that where you are most broken, the parts where you have the least ability. Second Corinthians chapter 12, Paul comes before God and he says, I just want to be more effective for you. And I've got this thorn in the flesh and it drives me nuts. And if you take it away, I can do great things for you, God. He says, three times I asked God to take it away. And what was God's response? My grace is all you need. That's what you need most. Because my power works best in weakness to the point that Paul's able to say, I keep the thorn. Because when I am weak, that's when I am strong. That's when God's strength shines through. If we think we can do this on our own, it's a generation and done. If we're desperately crying out to God on our knees, there is a future and a hope. Third, we become so enmeshed in secular culture that we don't even notice we've adopted ungodly practices. To intercept this entropy, we must keep the word of God as the first and the final standard for everything in life and faith that goes on in our existence. It is so easy to adopt the patterns, practices, and perceptions of this world and not even realize that we're wandering away from God's plan. So, we looked at the story of, story of Gideon last week. One part we did not look at is found in chapter 8. In chapter 8, they fought great battles. They won great victories. And we find the people coming to Gideon and saying, we want you to be our ruler. We want your sons and your grandsons to rule over us. What are they saying? We're ready for a king and you're the man. Gideon responds, I won't do this. Nor will my sons my relations will not rule. do this. Why? The Lord will rule over you. Gideon understood his role. He was a judge. He was not to be a king. God was to be their king. But he says, I do have this one request. 
I'd like each of you to give me an earring from the plunder you collected from the fallen enemies. And there's this little note, just, just so that we understand, the enemy being Ishmaelites, all wore gold earrings. So he basically says, give me the gold earrings. They put out a coat and they throw the gold earrings on the, onto the pile. 43 pounds of gold. Boom, there it is. All there for Gideon to take. Now, I guess he could have worn an earring a day. You know, he could, have, he could have been kind of a stylish sort of guy. But what he decides to do, he melts it down and he makes it into a golden ephod. There are a lot of debates among scholars as to what the ephod is. We know that the priests in the temple wore an ephod, which was basically a beautiful garment that they wore. Whatever the ephod is, we read that he makes a sacred ephod from the gold and he sets it up in his hometown. Look what the next part says. But soon all the Israelites prostituted themselves by worshiping the ephod and it became a trap for Gideon and his family. Can you imagine this? This is the guy who has rescued this nation from captivity and now intentionally or, or inadvertently, he introduces them to idol worship all over again. Now they're, now they're worshiping a garment, a golden garment in Gideon's hometown. And it says it became a trap for his family. It became a snare for his family along the way. He's just doing what people do. You win a battle, you get the plunder. And you make it into something special as a memorial for the battle. And before you know it, they're all worshiping at the ephod. We intercept this kind of entropy and turn it around when we keep God's word and God's standard as the final authority for faith and practice in our life. Our tendency, to be honest, when, we, when we're about to do something, when we know it's questionable, when we're, we're pretty sure eh, God probably wouldn't be happy, but we pull. We find a handful of friends. What do you think? What do you think? What do you think? What do you think? You know, and if you get about four out of five, you're like, that's good. It's good enough for crest. I mean, four out of five dentists approve, so we're good. Let's go. Four out of five, I'm going to go ahead and do this. But if the four out of five contradict the word of God, that's too many. It's too many. We're supposed to always come back and follow what the word of God has to say as the sole authority for faith and practice in our lives. God is looking for us not to just slide into the patterns of our culture, but to be transformed by the ruining of our minds through his word. The fourth one, we forget and break the covenant commitments we have made before God and others. We don't really have a lot of covenant commitments in our lives. Things that are just unbreakable promises. Marriage is a covenant commitment. Part of your relationship with others in the body of Christ is a, is a covenant commitment. I wouldn't call work a covenant commitment, though it's good to call if you're not going to be there. But, you know, we do have, we have commitments in our lives Things that, that if we do them or don't do them, the way we do them reflect on our character. We saw Samson had made a covenant commitment and he broke every one of them. And as he broke every one, he was weaker and weaker and ultimately in, in captivity. Why do we keep breaking our covenants? I think there are two reasons. One is an issue of perspective. We view our commitments, we view these promises we've made as a duty, as a chore, and maybe even as a burden, we tend to see these things as the thing in life that's keeping me from experiencing real freedom and real joy. We view them as traps. The interception starts with a mental shift. You see, my commitments are not holding me back. My commitments are the things that are holding me together. 
My commitments are the things that help me to be who I am before God. And the second is an issue of perseverance. We live in a society that promotes the false idea that there is a quick and easy way to do everything. But there is nothing quick or easy about commitments. They're hard. They're demanding. They take time. They take effort. And bottom line, it's the right thing to do, and that's why we do it. This is really an issue of the heart. Is my heart strong enough to do the right thing even when I don't feel like doing the right thing? Fifth one, we let our desires and impulses rule our lives rather than God's Holy Spirit. We live in an age where what feels good is what is true and how it feels is more important than truth. How do we overcome our impulses? Well, for one, we need to recognize we're being controlled by our impulses. We need, we need the realization that we're living as slave to our desires. Here's a little test. Just this next week, I want, you to, I want you to think, every time you use the word need, was that the right word? I need a milkshake. You know, kind of like, if you don't pump this in my arm right now, I'm going to die. No, I want a milkshake. Uh, think through it. How many times do you use the word need when really the truth is you want it? We're want machines. We are want machines. And by the way, I need to clarify this. There's nothing wrong with desires. God gave us our desires. Our desires, if properly followed, actually lead to a deeper relationship with God. The problem arises when our desires become obsessions. And when the objects we pursue become idols. The sixth, we cry out to God for help because we are facing pain, but not because we are truly sorry for our sins. So we just went through another Christmas season, and I'm sure at least once, twice, or 50 times you saw the movie, The Christmas Story. You know, the BB gun movie? You remember the bad guy in the story? Scott Fargus. Flaming red or orange hair yellow eyes, silver braced teeth. Scott loved to crank an arm behind a kid and just crank that arm until the kid would scream, uncle, uncle, uncle. Crying uncle is an Americanism for I give in, please stop, I can't take it anymore. When the pain of sin reaches its peak, humans cry, uncle, I can't take it anymore. It's too intense, I give up. Pain is a natural consequence of sin. And honestly, I'm glad it's there. It is a mechanism built into sin so that we know that something is wrong. What we're doing is wrong. It's not good for us. The pain brings us to the point of seeing that is wrong. It's unhealthy. It's hurtful. The pain causes us to cry, Uncle, God, please stop the pain. Well, this is a positive first step. It is not the complete step. God doesn't want to simply throw off the pain. He wants us to turn from the sin. He wants us to admit that what we're doing is wrong, that we realize it's wrong and we repent of it. God is not looking for a false repentance. There's a story in Judges chapter 10. It actually starts in, in verse 6, even though the slide says 10. And in this story, the people once again have fallen into captivity. They're, they're, they're there once again. They've served false gods. They've just gone ahead and strayed from the Lord their God. And Toward verse 10, we find Israel in great distress. What do they do? They cry out to God, we've sinned, we've abandoned you. We followed after Baal, we've served him. 
The Lord's reply comes, and it's an interesting reply. He says, did I not rescue you from the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonites, the Amalekites, and the Maonites? When they oppressed you, you cried out to me for help, and I rescued you. Yet you abandoned me and served the other gods. So guess what? I'm not going to rescue you. In fact, here's what you're going to do. Go and cry out to the gods you've chosen. Let them rescue you in your hour of distress. And you know what's amazing? Pretty immediately they go, that's not going to work. Because they know these false gods aren't the true and living God. And so we come to the end of the passage where it says, but the Israelites pleaded with the Lord and said, we have sinned. Punish us as you see fit. Only rescue us today from our enemies. Here it is. Then the Israelites put aside their foreign gods and served the Lord. And it was then that he was grieved by their misery. It was not enough to cry uncle. They needed to say we've sinned and we're ready to stop. We're ready to stop doing the wrong thing. We're ready to turn. Which leads us to the last. Judges 21-25. Incredibly sad verse. Last verse of the book. In those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Our problem is that when we live like we have no king and we just choose to do our own thing, we live like we're our master. We're our, it's, it's, this is my body. This is my life. Nobody's going to tell me what to do with me. I belong to me. And the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, beginning with verse 18, addresses this very directly. He addresses it in the context of sexual sin. You know what he says to do? He says, run from sexual sin. What he says is, none of you are old enough to handle it. Run! Run from it! He says, no other sin so clearly affects the body as this one. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? So whatever you're doing, whatever you're doing, any day you're doing it, you're taking the Holy Spirit along with you while you're doing it. And he says, you do not belong to yourself. This is an important spiritual truth for Christ followers. I don't own me. I don't own me. I've been bought with the price that was high. I've been bought with the blood of Jesus. He says, in light of that, you must honor God with your body. It is a huge problem when we come to the point of saying, I have no king and I'm going to do what I th whatever thing I please. It is completely antithetical to what it means to being a devoted Christ follower. I was asked this week if it is possible to keep ourselves from living this cycle, from doing it over and over again. I think the answer to it is found at the end of the letter John wrote. John 1, 1 John chapter 5, verse 21. He's talking to the people he teaches as little children. He says, little children. Some translations simply say, keep yourself from idols. This one, New Living says, little children, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your heart. Can you live that way? Stay away from anything that might take God's place in your heart. You and I know there are some things that are competing. They're competing to be king of our lives. Can we stay away from them? He says, keep away. 
No contentment, drifting to complacency, drifting to compromise. Keep away. Actively keep away. Keep yourself from it. The antidote for entropy is action. Intentional action. Not just drifting, but acting. I will not go there. I will not do that. We're going to move to our time of communion. And communion celebrates the true power that we have in God through Jesus Christ. Because the blood of Jesus was shed to forgive our sins. And the blood of Jesus was given so that we can live a life of power over sin. When we do this, we move to one of the six stations around the room. There are two up front, two on the edges of the stage that are gluten-free, and two in the back. And we're going to listen to a passage of Scripture that's going to call on us. Our, our theme this year during communion is to look up. We're going to look up to God for hope and help when we're trapped, when we're involved in the cycle, when we find ourselves captive to the enemy, captive to sin. Uh, this is a beautiful psalm of, of deliverance, a psalm of returning, Psalm 85, specifically making their crest, God, revive us again. So we will listen to Brian read the psalm, then we'll be quiet for a minute, maybe take one or, or a couple of these and just ask God, where is it? Where is it you're drawing me close to yourself? You're calling me away from the sin in which I've been involved. And then we'll unite together in praying the prayer followed by going to communion. Again, this is Psalm 85. Lord, your love has poured out so many amazing blessings on our land. You've restored Israel's destiny from captivity. You've forgiven our many sins and covered every one of them in your love. So now it's obvious that your blazing anger has ended and the furious fire of wrath has been extinguished by your mercy. So bring us back to loving you, God our Savior. Restore our hearts so that we'll never again feel your anger rise against us. Will you forever hold a grudge? Will your anger endure for all time? Revive us again, O oh God. I know you will. Give us a fresh start then all your people will taste your joy and gladness. Pour out even more of your love on us. Reveal more of your kindness and restore us back to you. Now I'll listen carefully for your voice and wait to hear whatever you have to say. Let me hear your promise of peace, the message every one of your followers longs to hear. Just don't let us, in our ignorance, turn back from following you. For I know your power and presence shines on all that you love. Your glory always hovers over all who bow low before you. Your mercy and your truth have married each other. Your righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Flowers of your faithfulness are blooming on the earth, and righteousness shines down from the sky. Yes, the Lord keeps raining down blessing after blessing, and prosperity will drench the land with a bountiful harvest. For deliverance and peace are his forerunners, preparing a path for his steps. If you would at this time, join me in looking up and offering the Lord's Prayer to God our Father.
Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. I find myself overwhelmed by an image this morning. By the image of coming to the end of time and all of God's people from all the ages are gathered together in heaven. We're just in this huge crowd and central to the crowd is a man in a beautiful white robe scars in his hands. And we all gather together and we sing those words. Oh, precious is the flow that made me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And we finally have this realization that the only reason we're there is because of him. And we are finally overwhelmed and captivated by having been loved so greatly. And we know that there is nothing good that we could have done to deserve being there. This morning wasn't about guilt. It's not about pointing out faults and it's not about trying a little harder and getting it right this time. This morning is about realizing that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. But with Jesus, we can do everything. You're not only forgiven, but you've been given the freedom to live a, a life that is not in bondage to sin because of the blood of Jesus. I hope you'll celebrate that this week and live in the power, in the power of his love and his blood. Jesus, thank you. Thank you so much for giving your life so that we could have life. Help us to learn in this world where things are seen dimly just exactly how powerful that is to live into it completely. We love you because you love us. Amen. Our servers are coming right now. They're going to receive the offering and Brian's going to tell us why he's not going to be here the next two weeks. Yeah, I'm taking two weeks very much um, on. <laughs> no two weeks off. Two weeks uh, for the next two weekends, I'll be gone. Some of our uh, youth leaders will be gone as we head up to Lake Geneva Youth Camp to celebrate uh, our winter retreat uh, with a whole bunch of other churches from Wisconsin and northern Illinois uh, at Arctic Blast. So we're going to be leaving at 5.30 from here on Friday. We really need to have wheels rolling by then because in case it snows, we want to make sure that we have plenty of time to get up there, unpacked, registered uh, when we get there and everything. Now, I'm excited to be able to say that. Normally, we'd be like, yeah, you know what, if we leave by six, we'll still make it because it's a two-hour drive and we don't have to worry about weather because the last few years, Arctic Blast has been more like January Mudfest. <laughs> this year, we finally are going to have some snow. So Yay. unlike years past, I, we're, we're going to need you to pack your snow pants, pack gloves, pack boots, pack things like that. Because right out of the get-go, like as soon as we get there, instead of just being crammed into that gym, if you've been there before, instead of being crammed in that gym, uh, we're actually going to have the, the sled hill open. There are gonna be, uh, there's going to be 
Broomball on, on ice, ice. Yeah, woo, which is woo, awesome, yeah. uh, instead of just running around a gym. So again, a, a lot of really good changes that I'm excited for, uh, but just some more preparation will be needed. I'm going to be sending out some more information on that later in the week through Remind. Now, one unfortunate bit of news that teachers around the country have been panicking about, uh, Remind has been working with all carriers to send out messages for, for free. Verizon this week decided that they were going to charge services like Remind an extra fee in order to, to send text messages. So Remind has decided we're not, we're not going to be able to uh, pay for that. So now if you are a Verizon customer, if you're AT&T or anybody else, like plug your ears, but if you're a Verizon customer and all you did to sign up for our text messaging system was text the code, text our code to that number, you will no longer receive Remind messages. Instead, you need to go and get the app, get the Remind app, and start receiving messages that way. So it doesn't totally cut you off. It's going to be okay. But if you did just text that code in to start receiving our updates, you'll actually need to get the app now uh, and receive messages that way. Another app that you can download, students especially, parents, um, is the Lake Geneva Youth Camp app. You want to do that here because there's no service up at Lake Geneva in order to do that. But that has everything. That has the whole weekend schedule. That has um, all kinds of information about what to bring, what to do in an emergency, how, how to contact people even when you're up there. So the Lake Geneva Youth Camp app, it's, it's awesome. It's really nice and simple. There's, there's even a spot for you to take notes while we're up there. So again, really cool uh, opportunity to, to do that. Now, although I will be gone the next two Saturdays, men's basketball, still going to roll. John Beaker has graciously agreed uh, to take over for those two weeks. So Saturday morning, while our group might be a little lighter next weekend, uh, for, the, for the, both of the next two weekends, we will still be playing basketball in the gym. Good deal. That's great. Nice of John to do that. Yeah. So what you're saying is like next weekend, the fierce competition will be gone, and John, who turned 48, <laughs> will be... We'll right. be out yeah, there, yeah. and you might actually stand a chance, right? Yeah, he's a burning Oh, John's in this service. How are you, John? <laughs> yeah. I... Ooh. Ooh. There we go. I don't know if uh, that's a basketball joke or a fat joke. Either way. Like a... <laughs> but uh, one more thing that I need to mention. Next week, since we will be coming back from a high school <clears throat> retreat weekend, we will not have Revive because as soon as we get back, there's actually going to be the church business meeting here. Uh, so we will not have Revive next weekend. However, the following Sunday when we return from the junior high retreat, there will be Revive. Wednesdays are not affected in any way, shape, or form by either one of these trips. Uh, but just so you're aware, so next no high Sunday. school group next Sunday, but right. the Sunday after there's high school group, even right. though you're coming so back. One, yeah, from one a week off. Weekend. One week off, and, Very good. and we'll be back to it. Good. So you got your links earlier in your email and the two main things to see there at the bottom. Love for you to try a soft serve. A soft serve is a, a chance to try out an area of serving. You're not signing up and you're going to do it for the next 10 years. You're literally just trying it, seeing what it's like. So you can sign up for that. And there's also a link to be able to sign up for the women's retreat coming up on February 16th. So some great opportunities for you. Uh, next week, we've got a fun surprise. I'm not telling you what it is. You've got to come see what it is. And then the other thing we're going to do next week that I'm, I'm really excited about, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna hit the book of Ruth. We're going to spend the whole morning in the book of Ruth. Immediately follows the book of Judges. And, and part of the reason it's there is because Ruth actually existed during the period of the Judges. 
And part of what I love about the book of Ruth, after the hopelessness and despair of the book of Judges, you find that there are actually some people along the way that still follow hard after God, even during intensely difficult seasons. So I can't wait to come back and gather and study how God always has someone out there saying, I'm going to remain true. I'm going to remain faithful. And it's through them that just incredibly great things happen. So again, uh, thank you for being here this morning. I think we got it all in. Have fun playing in the snow. That'd be a good time. Very good time. All right. Y'all have a good week. We'll see you.